Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. I want to welcome you aboard my starship. We're going to travel around the solar system. Maybe go into interstellar space a little bit. Talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S Factor. Welcome aboard. It is April 3rd, 2021. Feels good to be back. I took last month off. I replayed a popular show last month. So welcome aboard for a brand new episode. So many things have been happening in the world of science. Lots of cool things. We're going to get into that today. And our feature topic for today, after the science news, how much sleep do you need? Have you ever been sleep deprived? The science of sleep and its importance today on the S-Factor, the feature topic for the day. Our first news bit today has to do with brain size. And it's from Live Science. Now, I always joke with my wife and I... I always joke with her and say, you know, my head isn't big for no reason. I have a lot of brains jammed in here. So let's say, <laughs> let's see what they say about brain size here. Are big brains smarter? Does the size of your brain say something about your smarts? Plenty of brainy scientists have pondered the link between a person's or animal's gray matter and their cognitive skills. Perhaps fitting for a question about the human brain, which packs in more than 100 billion neurons, according to the National Institutes of Health. But the answer is mirrored in complexities and unknowns. For one, scientists still debate over the definition of intelligence. For any IQ definition, how do you measure it? Furthermore, do differences in IQ show up in daily life? And finally, does more brain tissue or a heftier brain equate with higher IQ. One thing scientists do agree on, a big brain alone doesn't equate with smarts. If it did, elephants and sperm whales would win all the spelling bees. (laughs) Rather, scientists look at brain mass relative to body mass in order to make any speculation about a creature's cognitive abilities. So while an elephant noggin at 10.5 pounds could squash a human think box in a purely physical battle of brains, You and I take the cake in a war of wits. Our brains, which weigh an average of 2.7 pounds, account for about 2% of body weight, compared with an elephant's under one-tenth of a percent. Studies have shown that across species, relatively large brains do seem to provide some complex cognitive skills, such as innovative solutions to ecological problems, more efficient resource mapping, and food acquisition and more complex social strategies, such as deception, said Nancy Berrickman, a graduate student in Duke University's Department of Biological Anthropology and Anatomy. A study by Sarah Benson of the University of Wyoming in Laramie and her colleagues revealed experimental data linking animal smarts with relative brain size. In that study, detailed January 25, 2016, in the Journal on Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the researchers gave 140 zoo-dwelling mammalian carnivores from 39 different species a tasty problem to solve. 
the animals had to open an L-shaped latch to open a box and grab the treat inside. They found that animals in the bear family did best, while two species of mongoose never managed to open the latch. After accounting for other factors that could lead to successful latch opening, such as manual dexterity, the researchers concluded that relative brain size was the most significant predictor of success in that task. Differences in brain size within a species, such as humans, are relatively small, making it difficult to tease out the effects of brain size and the effects of other factors. For instance, the difference in intelligence between an individual with, say, a brain that's 1,100 grams and one that's 1,400 grams, which could be found in humans, is confounded by other variables, including differences in density of neurons, other structural brain differences, and sociocultural factors. Take genius Albert Einstein, whose brain was not significantly bigger than the average human's. Rather, some scientists have found his ability to grasp mind-boggling concepts and make seemingly impossible mental leaps may have come down to connections. Turns out, his noggin was likely highly integrated so that several paths would have connected distant regions to one another. Brain size seems to have nothing to do with scores on standard intelligence tests, according to the brain scan study of young children. Michael McDaniel, an industrial and organizational psychologist at Virginia Commonwealth University, has claimed that bigger brains do make for smarter people. Well, I feel good about that because I think my head's rather large and I have a big brain in it, so that makes me feel good. <laughs> Many researchers, however, disagree with McDaniel's conclusion. His research, published in 2005 in the journal Intelligence, suggested that across all age groups and sexes, brain volume is linked to intelligence. Now, sizing up brains for the rest of the animal kingdom would include sperm whale, which is 17 pounds. Think about that. That's a lot of gray matter, isn't it? 17 pounds? Wow. The walrus has a 2.4 pound brain. And you compare that to a domestic cat that you'd have in your house, it's 0 0.06 pounds, 30 grams. If brain size had anything to do with innovation and creativity, some scientists expected to see a link between the so-called Mines Big Bang, the emergence of bone tools and cave paintings that occurred between 50,000 and 70,000 years ago, and the emergence of modern-sized human brains. Not the case. But there you go. There you have it. The Big Brain Study. Next up is a cool news bit from Wired. Can alien smog lead us to extraterrestrial civilizations? Last March, when Ravi Kuplar was working from his desk at the Goddard Space Center in Maryland, he came across a press release from NASA's Earth Observatory. Levels of nitrogen dioxide, NO2, had plummeted over China since the country of 1.4 billion instituted strict stay-at-home orders more than a month earlier. He texted his colleague, Jacob Hahn, with this link. Technosignature, he wrote. Oh, interesting, was the reply on that text. The observations have piqued Koperar's interest, and two months later, still thinking about the ways that modern societies pollute their planet's air. He read a paper on the effects of pandemic-related public health measures on atmospheric pollution. Researchers found the same effect playing out in other highly industrialized nations, like South Korea and the United States. The level of 
NO2 over urban centers decreased by 20 and 40% from January to April 2020. When many governments were following China's lead in mandating that citizens stay at home, nitrogen dioxide is one of the more prevalent pollutants, a result of combustion and fossil fuel use, as well as natural biological processes like soil emissions and lightning. But he wasn't interested in NO2 because of its effect on Earth. His focus was light years away, in the atmospheres of more than 4,000 known exoplanets in our region of the Milky Way galaxy. The shutdown had shown what atmospheric scientists had struggled to accurately measure up until that point, that the majority, roughly 65% of Earth's NO2 is from non-biological sources. The combined result of our commuting, manufacturing, and gas and metal refining, if this was the case, he wanted to know, would it be possible to detect this gas in the faraway atmospheres of exoplanets? And if it was, could we be looking at a civilization not unlike our own that had made use of its fossil fuels to drive a technological revolution? We're producing three times more nitrogen dioxide than what biology and lightning together are producing. So if we see an Earth-like planet in the nitrogen dioxide signal, and we make a model for all of the biological and atmospheric sources possible, and still cannot explain the amount we are seeing on the planet, then one possibility is that there could be a technological civilization. Nukup Paratu is at the forefront of an emerging field in astronomy that is aiming to identify technosignatures or technological markers we can search for in the cosmos. Now think about that. We have to use these techniques to determine if there are alien civilizations out there on these exoplanets because they're so far away. We don't have the technology to really zoom in on any of these things. So there's other signatures that we have to look for, where then we can make the assumption that there may be intelligent life having this output, which is noticeable from Earth with our telescopes or telescopes in space that are able to see these signatures and then make the determination based on those findings. No longer conceptually limited to radio signals, astronomers are looking for ways we could identify planets or other spacefaring objects by looking for things like atmospheric gas, gases, lasers, and even hypothetical sun encircling structures like the Dyson sphere. Technosignatures could be observed from Earth or by some of our more ambiguous probe concepts like Starshot, a, la a laser-powered light sail that could theoretically reach Alpha Centauri in two decades. Eager to explore further, Koparapu discussed the idea with his colleagues. They published a paper in late February by the Astrophysical Journal and explored this question using a computer model that mimicked a single column of atmosphere on an Earth-like planet and calculated the odds that we could find traces of NO2 on one of our galactic neighbors. Their model simulates the exposure of atmospheric molecules to sunlight, Specifically, four different types of sunlight, modeled off our own sun, an orange dwarf star, and two M-type stars like Proxima Centauri. Each star emits a unique spectrum of light that interacts with the atmospheres of orbiting planets and causes photochemical reactions. When radiation or light from the sun heats up molecules in the atmosphere, 
they enter a temporary they enter a temporarily excited state in which a number of things can happen. They can break apart or they can bond together. And on the ground they can become plant food. Different types of radiation from other types of stars could mute or stimulate an NO2 signal. Biological processes like soil nitrification, wildfires, and lightning also produce NO2, but research on Earth suggests that these sources provide far less of the overall total than anthropogenic sources, namely the burning of fossil fuels. Still, there are only a small handful of atmospheres from within our own solar system that we've been able to study in any detail that would provide a helpful bias for comparison. For what it's worth, there has been some momentum behind a new search for life in space, and it's coming from Congress. In the 2018 House Appropriations Bill, Congress directed NASA to include technosignatures as part of its research portfolio, which had not been the case for several decades. Later that year, NASA hosted a three-day technosignatures workshop in Houston, bringing together leaders in a number of scientific disciplines to assess the current state of the field and determine a path forward. The new Biden administration has thrown its full support behind the moon, bound Artemis program and the Space Force, but it's yet to clear whether that support will extend to the search for life in the cosmos. So we'll have to see what happens here, what transpires moving forward. The techno-signatures. You know, I think we're still a far way away from making that determination of saying, hey, look, we found NO2 here, so that must mean there's advanced alien life, an advanced civilization creating that because it can happen naturally. But I think the techno signatures are a step in the right direction because since we can't zoom in to these exoplanets yet, we don't have a telescope that has traveled that far out, we have to use these other methods of determining whether there's possible civilizations out there. Now, what do you think about that? I know this is a pre-recorded show here, The S Factor on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. But you know, I love hearing from you guys, so you can email me. You have questions or comments about anything we talk about on the S-Factor. You can email me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. had a gentleman contact me not terribly long ago uh, through email. He is a listener in Violin, and we talk an awful lot about AI, artificial intelligence. And I love talking about it because, you know, these there are major companies working on it day and night. So I think it's a, it's a good topic. It's topical. It's, it's something that's happening now. It's a current issue. It's a current topic. So these companies, whether we want them to or not, are pushing in that direction day and night. So I had a gentleman contact me and he said, you know, just because we have the ability to do something doesn't mean we should do it. Listen, it's hard to argue that. You know, the only thing is, these companies are enormous. Some of the biggest companies on Earth are pushing towards artificial intelligence. I believe it was Mark Cuban, if I'm not mistaken, that said, the person that that masters artificial intelligence as a business, that person will become the world's first trillionaire. You know, we have all these billionaires all over the place, but they'll be the first trillionaire. He may, he may have used a number even higher than that. So 
it's a very, and that's why they're rushing towards it. They know there's so much money there. But on the way to creating it, we have to, philosophers, psychologists, general people out there, we all have to ask this question. Are we ready for such technology? Are we ready for maybe some very important decisions to be made autonomously? If you look what's happening in the automobile industry with a lot of these cars that are out there, like the Tesla and others, they're getting more and more technological, more and more technological to the point where they can detect with sensors on the front of the vehicle how close you're getting to something, and it will apply a brake faster than you can react. So we're all heading in this direction. And as I said in the past, anything short of some kind of calamity, which I hope never happens, but anything short of that, you know, people are going, and that could be anything. That could be a pandemic that stops things. That could be, you know, an asteroid or anything like that. And I don't, I don't hope for any of that to happen. Now that stuff, anything short of that, this technology and this research, this R&D will continue. And I just hope that the, the creators think about the big picture and not just the, the profit that goes along with it. Profit's certainly a beautiful thing, but we also have to think about, especially when it comes to that technology, we have to think about the wide-ranging implications of it. So I want to thank that gentleman for getting uh, in touch with me there. And I love emails. And, you know, an, an email can, can spur an entire conversation. It can spur a, a, a new uh, feature on the, on the show, a new topic. So again, if you want to reach out, that's info at scienceanimated.net. And by the way, the S-Factor that you're listening to right now, right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, is the first Saturday of every month right here on this great radio station. You can catch me here at 1 o'clock, the first Saturday of the month. And if you missed the S-Factor, if you've missed any of these S-Factors, the show has been on the air for a year and a half now, if you've missed any of them and science piques your interest, if you are a curious person at heart, you want to check out my website, scienceanimated.net. There you'll find all the past S-Factor shows in podcast form. You can download them, listen to them on your phone. If you have, if you drive a lot and you want something interesting to listen to, we all love just general entertainment, but I like to think that this show is merges entertainment and education together, much like you know, my film, Science Animated, The Human Body, that you can find at scienceanimated.net. And of course, The S Factor is available on all the popular podcasting platforms. Apple, Google, you type, you go to the, those podcasting channels, you type in The S Factor, you will find me there. Give me a star rating, hit, give me a like, a subscription on YouTube, anything that you could do to support the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. Visit my sponsors, got some great sponsors on here. And I thank you in advance for that. This next story is brought to you by National Geographic. This is a very interesting story. This in-demand plant is evolving to hide from its predator. Humans! The small herb once easily spotted by its vibrant flower and leaves is growing brown and gray in spots where humans often pluck them. So we are seeing evolution in real time here. 
In southwest China, high in the Hindu mountains, in southwest China, a small herb is getting harder to find. Called Fritillaria delave, it produces a bright, tulip-shaped, yellow-hued flower. But that eye-catching yellow flower and those vibrant green leaves have started to grow gray and brown in this species. Scientists suspect the plant is genetically evolving drabber parts to hide from its main predator, humans. In a study published in the journal Current Biology, scientists from China and the UK found that in areas where Fritillaria was being harvested at high rates, the herb was more likely to camouflage. While some plant species grow smaller when over-harvested because their large counterparts are picked before they can reproduce, this herb used in Chinese traditional medicine to treat lung conditions like bronchitis or a bad cough may be the first example of a threatened plant evolving to blend into its surroundings. Fritillaria has been picked and used medicinally for at least 2,000 years, so this is no uh, new picking here. But steadily increasing demand and insufficient supply has triggered a treasure hunt for more. The price for one kilogram of the plant's bulbs, the part of the plant used medicinally, is around $480. One kilogram. Each tiny bulb is about the size of a thumbnail. To harvest one kilogram requires more than 3,500 individual plants. Whoa! No wonder why it's so expensive. Now, some species of Fritillaria can be farmed, but grows naturally in high elevations in cold, dry air, conditions difficult for farmers to replicate, and consumers think that wild varieties are better, though there's no evidence to show that's true, according to Yang Noon, one of the study's authors. In 2011, he and a group of scientists set out to study how the plant was pollinated, curious about why some flowers seem to be male one year, but both male and female in other years, their research failed after the plants they tagged in the wild were later dug up and presumably sold, leaving them without study subjects. Noon and his colleagues previously studied plants that adapted camouflage to hide from herbivores and had been intrigued by the Chinese herb, a bright plant not known to be eaten by animals. We then realized that the harvesting could be a strong selective force. Now, the researchers first consulted with local herbalists who had six years of records showing where plants had grown and how many had been picked. They determined which areas were already heavily harvested and easier to access versus those tucked away in rocky mountainous terrains. Using a tool called a spectrometer, which measures wavelengths of light to determine color, they measured plant color at different locations and found a correlation between how much of the population had been dug up in a given spot and the color of a flower. In less accessible regions where few humans went, plants were still bright green and yellow, but in locations where bulbs were picked in high numbers, colors were growing duller. Delaverie is the only fritillaria species that grows in high elevations. The researchers even created a game, Spot the Plant, to test how easily camouflaged plants could be found. When volunteers were asked to identify fritillaria delavei, among rocks and dirt, it took them longer to locate specimens with measurably less vibrant color. 
We've known for thousands of years humans have shaped the way plants look through domestication. The way we've bred plants for food is a really great example of human-mediated selection in the wild, documenting a change and pretty convincingly relating that change to human pressure. In this case, harvesting. While it's common for humans to prompt plant adaptation indirectly, changing the environment, for example, and thus prompting adaptation, this presents a rarer direct human-to-plant relationship. Jill Anderson, a biologist at the University of Georgia, sees the paper's conclusion as a tantalizing hypothesis, but says for her to be convinced that it's humans causing this camouflage, she'll need to see further proof. While the paper's authors ruled out herbivores like yaks as the culprits behind a plant's camouflage, Anderson wonders if climate shifts like stronger UV light at higher elevations may have influenced the plant's color. Certainly, there might be other things contributing to this change, weather or elevation, or an herbivore they didn't happen to see, says Rubin, but the relationship between harvest pressure and color was quite strong. The populations with strong harvest pressure had the closest match to the background. But say that humans are the agents of change. How would harvesting these bulbs lead the plant to turn brown? Humans go into a population and harvest the most visible plants they can. Harvested plants no longer have the capacity to contribute to the next generation. Whereas the camouflage plants can live out their life cycles, it's a process of natural selection in these populations. It's possible that Fritillaria delavrii could have evolved in a short time frame. The plant takes five years to reproduce, meaning all the bright green plants could be picked before they have the chance to pass on their colorful genes. Within a generation or two, a population of plants in a highly trafficked area might have a gene pool with predominantly gray-brown DNA. Though scientists didn't perform a genetic analysis of this plant, humans have been known to influence other species. Anderson says in her classes she highlights the shrinking size of some fish, like Atlantic cod and pink salmon, that are heavily targeted by fishers. As they gathered in nets, smaller ones are able to slip through, while the larger ones stay stuck inside. Over time, the population as a whole becomes smaller. They took a concept we've thought a lot about in animal systems, says Anderson, and applied it to plants. This is the first paper I've read that explicitly considered how human harvesting can influence a key trait like coloration. There are other documented examples of human influencing a plant's traits over time, Snow lotus, another threatened Chinese plant, is about four inches shorter than it was a century ago in regions where it's commonly harvested. In the past century, American ginseng growing in eastern U.S. has also grown shorter and produced smaller leaves. Look how fast these plants evolved, to us overpicking them. That is incredible to think, isn't it? That evolution could possibly happen that fast? I mean, you see this all the time out in nature. You ever see it with weeds? How weeds can get those little prickly, translucent, like, thorns on them? You ever try, oh, I can pull that thing out of the ground easily. You go to go, oh, boy, that hurts. But it happens throughout nature like crazy. You know, my wife's family is from Sicily, and they love their artichokes. But when you buy an artichoke in the U.S. from California... They tend to be very, very, it's like a, my goodness gracious, it's like the petals are, are a shield over the plant. 
So I'm thinking to myself, not knowing much about artichokes before I met my wife, I'm thinking, well, this plant must have evolved to people picking it. And it's developed really tough petals where it's like an armor on this plant. And then my wife told me, well, no, you know, in Sicily, if you were to eat an artichoke, you can eat the whole thing. So it's like, well, there goes my my theory on the artichoke. <laughs> but this is kind of in that realm, a living thing such as a plant adapting to its surroundings, adapting in a way that will help its survival. Incredible. You are listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. If you like what you're listening to, you can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. If you miss any of these shows, you can check them out at your favorite podcast service like Google or Apple. Or you can also check out my website, scienceanimated.net. You'll see the podcast button at the top on navigation there. And you can also check out The Orbit Show, which is a family-friendly YouTube series. And to help support the show, purchase Science Animated to Human Body. It's a 40-minute animated thrill ride through the human body. Kids are guaranteed to love it. You're guaranteed to love it or your money back. What about that? $9.99 for the stream. The DVD's $16 or $17. You can check that out online. We'll be back with more intriguing science discussion after a word from our sponsors. You are listening to The S Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer, on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Now that spring is in the air, we're officially in spring. Summer is not far behind. And we all like to look good. We all like to look good, feel good. We know how important it is to have a healthy diet and how important it is to exercise. There's so many people today that feel like they don't have time to exercise, they don't have time to eat right, but now there is a solution. If you feel like you don't have time, if you feel like you don't have time to travel somewhere to a gym and work out, the solution is Tawny Fit. Personal trainer, certified personal trainer, and the creator of Tawny Fit, Tawny Basil, can help guide you to better health. She can show you the best exercise to do, no matter what the situation is. If you love going to a gym, she can go to the gym with you and show you the proper way to exercise. If you want to do it through a Zoom call, you want to do it virtually, she can do that too. If you have equipment or if you don't have equipment, in either case and in any case, Tawny Basil can guide you in achieving your goals. If your goal is to lose weight, if your goal is to get stronger, if your goal is just simply getting better physical health, Tawny Basil can guide you. She's a professional certified trainer. She has years of experience. She's helped countless clients in the Delaware Valley here, and she can help you too. Contact Tawny Basil. Now, Tawny, what is the best way for the listeners of The S Factor to contact you to get started on their road to better health? You can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text READY. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message READY to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com.
welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. Now, the feature topic for today is the science of sleep. And for years, I hated sleep because I felt like, man, all of those hours I'm laying down sleeping, I could be getting some stuff done. And when I worked on Science Animated, The Human Body, now that movie, I worked on that on the side. It took me three and a half years to finish that. And by the way, it's available now at scienceanimated.net. But I remember I stayed up so late at night. I would work on that movie until the wee hours of the morning. And I, I mean three, four o'clock in the morning I'd be working on that movie. So if you've, if you've watched that, if you picked up a copy, or if you are going to pick up a copy at scienceanimated.net, just something to think about when you're watching it. Chuck Shazer was up many, many nights working on that. So anyway, I looked at sleep for the longest time as my enemy because I felt like, man, if it wasn't for, if I'd have to sleep, I mean, we sleep a lot of our life away, right? If it wasn't for that, I'd, I'd be so much more productive. It used to get on my nerves. I'd be falling asleep at my computer. And, you know, there's some nights here or there where I'm still doing that, working on different things. But it is so important to get a good night's sleep. Now, it's always up for debate, it seems, how much sleep is enough. So we're going to talk about sleep here. Now, some cool information from CNET. You're probably familiar with typical effects of sleep deprivation. Most people have struggled through countless sleepless, sleep-deprived days, battling low motivation, crankiness, and brain fog. Some people are so short on sleep, they think they've adapted to sleep deprivation. No one ever truly adapts to sleep deprivation, though. You just function at a suboptimal state that you think is fine because it's become your norm. Aside from the day-to-day -day symptoms, chronic sleep deprivation can wreck every aspect of your health. And some side effects, like the six explained in this article, are so scary you'll want to hit your pillow. Stat. Now, sleep deprivation ages your skin. If you have an extensive skincare routine complete with cleansers, serums, eye creams, and moisturizers, it's not doing you much good if you're chronically sleep deprived. The short-term signs are obvious. Puffy eyes, dark circles, and a droopy eyelid are hallmarks of sleep deprivation. While short-term effects subside if you settle back into a healthy sleep cycle, long-term effects from chronic lack of sleep will sneak up on you as you age. Sleep deprivation affects the way your body, including your skin, recovers from life's daily stressors, including exposure to sunlight, blue light, and environmental toxins. Poor sleep can impede collagen and elastin production and slow the turnover of skin cells. Sleep loss also affects the production of certain hormones, including human growth hormone and cortisol, which contribute to the health of your skin. Over time, all this can lead to premature skin aging. It can also wreck your microbiome. Turns out your sleek or lack thereof can impact your gut microbiome. The trillions of microbes living in your digestive tract that largely influence your digestion, vitamin and mineral absorption, immune function, mental health, skin health, and hormone balance. When your gut is messed up, it may impair any of those things. 
Researchers have found that lack of sleep contributes to less diversity in the gut and can alter the functioning of your gut. Now, also, sleep deprivation impairs judgment and learning. Want to learn new things, get better at what you do, and become a more productive person? You better hop in the bed and make sure you get your full seven to nine hours of sleep. What's lesser known is that lack of sleep can also impair your judgment, memory, and learning, meaning you're not as mentally sharp during the day and you won't retain as much of what you learn or do. Sleep deprivation affects virtually every part of your brain, where particular research emphasis has been placed on the hippocampus, an important center in your brain responsible for memory formation and learning. Because lack of sleep can impair judgment so profoundly, it's common for people experiencing sleep loss to make mistakes or cause accidents, something that can cause major harm if your job requires you to make quick and important decisions. Sleep deprivation affects your weight. Lack of sleep obstructs weight loss indirectly in many ways. Without enough sleep, you're less likely to exercise the next day. You might make poorer food choices and you might eat more calories than you burn. Sleep deprivation can generally just smash your motivation to be a healthy person. In addition to food cravings and less exercise, scientists believe there may be a molecular tie to sleep deprivation and weight gain. Lack of sleep can lead to imbalances in hormones, neurotransmitters, and other important chemicals which affect your appetite and satiety signals. I remember there was a time when I was running multiple miles a week, and I would go out and I would run five miles at a time. And I remember I just felt like I couldn't get past a certain point of weight loss. And I, I was doing everything right. I was uh, juicing course lifting weights, which I still do. And I mean, I I was doing so and I was watching everything I ate, I was doing low carbs, high protein. So I was doing the cardio I was lifting. The only thing missing from my regimen was sleep. I mean, enough sleep. So I, I conducted a little experiment years ago, and I begrudgedly decided to get some more sleep at night. And I, I found that I, my weight changed. So I experienced that firsthand where getting more sleep helped my weight in a good way. We'll be back with more intriguing science discussion after a word from our sponsors. You are listening to The S Factor with your host Chuck Shazer on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. <laughs> Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. Now, have you ever wondered how long you can go without sleep? Here's some information from Men's Health. You're probably familiar with the National Sleep Foundation's guidelines suggesting that people get approximately 7 to 9 hours of sleep each night. 
But let's be honest, every so often you need to stay awake for an extended period of time, whether you're cramming for an exam or working on a deadline. So how long is a person actually physically able to go without sleeping? And you know what? That reminds me of when I was in college. During midterm week or finals week, I remember getting very little sleep and being very drowsy driving to the high speed line, which I would take into Philly to go to college. But driving to the high speed line, I remember being very, very tired some mornings because I would stay up way too late the night before working on stuff, working on assignments. Now, Randy Gardner currently holds the world record for sleep deprivation at 11 days. 11 days? That doesn't seem possible. Not just 11 days, but 11 days and 25 minutes. But according to W. Christopher Winter, M.D., author of The Sleep Solution, there's reason to be skeptical about this record. Investigators freely admit he was having near-constant micro-sleeps, which are brief periods of sleep that last just a few seconds during the experiment. He told menshealth.com. Even if someone does manage to stay up for days at a time, it's not great for your mental health. In 1959, for for instance, a radio presenter named Peter Tripp decided to broadcast his show from the middle of Times Square for 201 hours straight to raise money for Children's Foundation. By day three, Tripp had begun acting out, cursing at people around him and hallucinating spiders. Although he managed to finish the experiment and recover shortly after, his family members said he was never quite the same again. There have been many viral internet stories about people who claim they've not slept at all or only get about an hour of sleep per night. But Winter says these stories are probably inaccurate. Many people think that they are not sleeping and do not believe their doctors or their Fitbits who say they are. In other words, although people may believe they're only getting an hour or so of sleep per night, the truth is that they're likely sleeping without knowing it, even if just for a few minutes. The truth is, it's almost physically impossible to stay awake for days at a time, because your brain will eventually force you to fall asleep. Winter says that as much as you may try to force yourself to stay awake, eventually your brain gets fixated on sleep, and at a certain point there's not much you can do about it. Additionally, there are numerous health risks associated with long-term lack of sleep. Michael J. Bruce, Ph.D., sleep specialist and founder of the website The Sleep Doctor, says that lack of sleep is linked to side effects. You're also more prone to accidents, especially if you're behind the wheel of a car. So while there's no set number of hours for how long a person can stay awake, this experiment is probably not worth trying, says Winter. Now, how many of you have tried to stay up for days at a time. Have any, has anyone out there tried to do that? Or were you like me or you were a college student at one time and you tried staying up to get things done, to literally get assignments done? What's the longest? What's the longest you have gone without sleep? That's an awesome question I'd like you guys to answer. Contact me. Email me. Info at scienceanimated.net. Info at scienceanimated.net. I want to hear... What'd you have to say about this? How long have you gone without sleep? How did it make you feel? I might just read your story on the air. So feel free to reach out and, and contact me with that. Sleep is so incredibly important. I don't think the average person knows how important it, it actually is to your physical and mental health. 
I'm sure you guys out there feel differently when you have a good night's sleep versus when you do not. I know for a fact I do not have the mental clarity that I do when I get a full night's sleep versus when I do not. Definitely feel different. So get your sleep out there. Contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. Tawnyfit at gmail.com. Get yourself in good physical condition. And don't forget to get your sleep. So what are some of the things that can happen if you do not get enough sleep? This according to Business Insider. In our 24-7 culture, sleep loss is a major problem. But back in 1942, we averaged almost 8 hours of sleep a night. Now that's down to 6.8. 7 to 9 hours per night is what's generally recommended. Now almost 40% of Americans get less than 7 hours of sleep a night. A recent Gallup poll found, and an estimated 70 million Americans have a sleep disorder. It's a lot of people. There's about 330 million of us, so that's a big percentage. Everyone knows that it's important to get enough sleep, but you don't, may not realize how many things can go wrong when you don't. So let's let's talk about some of those things that can go wrong. You can get you can become more irritable. Complaints of irritability and emotional volatility following sleepless nights are common. A team of Israeli researchers observed, but they put those complaints to the test by following a group of underslept medical residents. The study found that the negative emotional effect of disruptive events, like being interrupted while in the middle of doing something, were amplified by sleep loss. Headaches. Scientists don't know exactly why sleep deprivation leads to headaches, but it's a connection doctors have been noticing for more than a century. Migraines can be triggered by sleepless nights, and 36 to 58% of people with sleep acne wake up with nondescript morning headaches. Something else that you can experience is poor vision. Sleep deprivation is associated with tunnel vision, double vision, and dimness. The longer you are awake, the more visual errors you'll encounter, and the more likely you are to experience outright hallucinations. Heart disease. When researchers kept people awake for 88 hours, their blood pressure went up. But even subjects who were allowed to sleep for four hours a night and had an elevated heart rate when compared to those getting eight hours. Concentrations of C-reactive protein, a marker for heart disease risk, increased in those fully and partially deprived of sleep. Infection. You know that great thing your immune system does when you get an open wound of some kind? It doesn't always get infected immediately. Prolonged sleep deprivation and even one night of sleeplessness can impede your body's natural defenses against microorganisms. Again, if you're just joining me here on the S-Factor, S-Factor is all about science. You're listening to the S-Factor on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And today's main topic, we're talking about how important sleep is. And these are the things that can happen to you if you don't get enough of it. Distractedness, having trouble paying attention to what you're reading or listening to, struggling with anything that requires you to truly focus, Attention tasks appear to be partially sensitive to sleep loss, researchers have noted. If you want to stay alert and attentive, sleep is a requirement. Otherwise, you enter an unstable state that fluctuates within seconds and that cannot be categorized as either fully awake or asleep, and your ability to pay attention is variable at best. If you're wondering why you're sick all the time and seem to pick up every bug that travels around the office, it's probably because you're not getting enough sleep. When a group of 153 people were exposed to a common cold, those who had gotten less than 7 hours of sleep in the two weeks prior were almost three times more likely to get sick than those who'd had eight or more hours of sleep. How well you sleep is also a factor. Those who had spent 92% of their time in bed 
actually asleep were 5.5 times more likely to catch a cold than those who had been peacefully slumbering 98 to 100% of the time they were in bed. So it's not just how long you were asleep, it's the quality of sleep. Now here's a big one. Being awake when your body wants you to be asleep messes with your metabolism, which turn, which in turn increases your risk for insulin resistance. Interventions to extend sleep duration may reduce diabetes risk. One study in adolescents concluded, and four large studies in adults found a strong association, though not a cause-effect relationship, between regular sleep loss and the risk of developing diabetes. Also, scientists are just beginning to investigate the relationship between sleep and cancer. So I think it's safe to say we are all better off with a little more sleep. I'm guilty as much as anyone else of staying up late and working on stuff and probably not getting the appropriate amount. And, you know, it, it seems like the days just fly by so quickly and you, and you figure you can make that up at night sometimes, but not always the best decision for your health, as we have found out. I want to thank you for joining me today on The S Factor. It is a pleasure to bring the best in science news to you every month. You can catch me here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. And if you miss any of these shows, you can check them out on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in the S Factor and you will see my handsome face come up on either Apple Podcast or Google Podcast. And of course, you can always go to scienceanimated.net, my website, listen to the past S Factor broadcasts. You can reach out to me at any time. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. You can just do a straight up email or you can go to scienceanimated.net and send me an email. If you are interested in advertising, I'll put together a wonderful commercial for you and play it right here on the air if you're interested in something like that reach out to me also and don't forget to help support the show not only visiting my advertisers but also purchasing science animated the human body which is a 40-minute dvd on the human body so be sure to check that out scienceanimated.net well that'll do it for me today i want to thank you for listening today on cruise 92.1 wvlt and if you're listening online thank you for listening to the podcast I want you guys to have a great weekend, and I will see you next time. You have been listening to The S-Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. You have been listening to The S-Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WBLT.